Welcome to Economic Frontiers from MIT's Initiative on the Digital Economy. I'm Andre Fratkin, and today our guest is Ananya Sen, who is a new postdoc in our group. Ananya is particularly interested in the intersection of economics, media, and technology, and specifically using new empirical strategies to tease out causality in this important and recently relevant setting. We start the conversation by discussing the existing literature on the causal effects of media on political and other types of behavior. Next, we move on to a discussion of how media chooses how much slant to produce, and specifically whether it's driven by the preferences of consumers or the preferences of the owners or suppliers for a given media company. We finish by talking about how digital technology is affecting the structure of the media. Perhaps surprisingly, Ananya tells us that the existing literature on things such as filter bubbles suggests that people are not more polarized online than offline. I learned a lot from this podcast, and I hope you enjoy it. What are the types of questions that uh, economists who study media ask, and uh, what are the main findings so far? Right. So first, thank you for having me. Um, so broadly, uh, so the economics of the media as as a as a subfield of economics is is reasonably recent. It's a it's a nascent but grow it but growing literature. Um, I think the, uh, the primary question that that the literature started out with was was trying to assess whether the media was important at all. You know whether it had any impact on any sort of outcomes, and you know these uh, you know whether whether the media has an outcome on voting on on different types of politics on you know whether whether watching violent movies can make you more violent. Does it have any impact on crime? Um, and these questions were generally earlier handled by, uh, earlier and even right now handled by uh, different literatures such as you know uh, the media and communications literature, even some political scientists uh, handling uh, you know these sort of questions. So I think about say 15, 15 years ago or so um, was when the first sort of studies started coming out, looking at the impact of. Um, of the radio on you know on government on government actions, the impact of television on voter turnout and things like that. So that that sounds like a very broad question: the impact of television on voter turnout. So uh, was was there something more precise that was being asked, or was it this big question in general? Right. So I mean, I think the, the motivation initially comes from the big question that okay, you know. Uh, do we, do we know anything about these impacts? And then you you narrow in on a on a particular question. And uh, in these other literatures, what was happening was that uh, they were basically looking at correlations. That is, you know, maybe people who watch uh, who watch violent movies are more likely to to commit violent crime. But you know, there's a correlation versus causation aspect. And so. The impact of the media on different outcomes was, you know, is a is a broad question. But then economists have have looked at, um, for example, they've looked at whether whether voters being more informed, you know, uh, through the availability of uh, of say the radio, does that make them get more favorable policies? Does uh, and you know and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that example that you bring up is quite interesting because. Uh, it brings up a complicated causal chain. It's not just that voters uh, or that people that listen to the radio are more informed, but it's also that the government is now responsive to them because they are informed and presumably they demand a certain type of policy. Uh, so it's interesting that that's one of the first studies in this literature because it's more involved than just a simple question that you might ask, which is, does... Uh, the media make people more informed to begin with, right? Right, that's true. That's true. But I mean, I think I think what the novelty of of, of the first couple of studies was that they were able to exploit re- you know reasonably exogenous variation to uh, to come up with a causal story. For example, um, the fact that the availability of uh, radio signals uh, is you know depends on. Uh, geographical variation in the terrain and and things like that, which makes the the signal reasonably idiosyncratic, at least conditional on certain observables. 
and you know uh, and then you can actually try and rule out other channels but but you're right but, but that's how the first attempt was made but like when um, the the study about the impact of television on voter turnout for example um, was was just looking at the impact of information on voter turnout and you know like information and does yeah. that does that have any impact uh, on the outcome yeah. and and here you're referring to the study that specifically looked at the effect of fox news or was this an earlier study? no so there was i think there was an earlier study by by matt jenskow uh -huh. where um and i think that was published in 2006 maybe um where he looked at um the the rollout of uh, of television in the us and how that impacted voter turnout and using the fact that uh, television licenses over uh, the 1940s 1950s were, were handed out in a reason you know there were there were uh, there were regulations there were there were some idiosyncrasies that you could take uh, advantage of to isolate the causal impact and what act what he actually found was that uh, television uh, led to you know a lower voter turnout in general and that was partly because television had a lot less news on it and it had other other forms of you know entertainment and people people actually shifted from the radio and newspapers and started watching watching more more tv and uh, that's something that you know led to a decline in voter turnout just because they were less informed or less yeah there were alternatives available yeah that's uh, really interesting yeah. just because now we, we we always tend to think that media is driving this political behavior forward in some way but it but it, here it's that media is a form of distraction from more substantive issues so it's more like the concern that people are watching too much tv instead of doing uh more social or good activities if you will right in some sense yes i mean yeah so that yeah th that's that's one of the takeaways from this but um so actually, Matt Jenska and Jesse Shapiro then they used the same identification strategy to to look at another impact of television, which is on on test scores. Because uh, you know the, there was this argument made that you know TV is bad for children because uh, uh, you know it, it takes away time from homework and things like that. And what they actually found was maybe a positive impact of TV on on test scores, especially for especially for uh, for students who were non-native uh, English speakers, mm -hmm. and so then they were watching English uh, English programs uh, on the TV, and then their you know their scores went up at least you know on uh, along that dimension. So it's, well, uh, I uh, I very much understand that channel because yeah. I learned how to speak English by watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I guess if you're a native speaker, you might not expect that that to be an important. Channel. Right, exactly, and yeah. and and that's why the, that study was credible, right? Because they were they they found this effect on non-native speakers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so let's uh, move forward a little bit in in this literature, uh, and uh, can you talk about specifically the studies of the media's role in the polarization? This is a very uh, important topic obviously given the recent election and actually the entire year preceding it. So do we think that uh, media is affecting how this, how extreme policy, how extremely uh, politicized people are and whether the policies that they support are more or less extreme? Okay, so I mean, um, I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but like I'll address the second part of your first question first in terms of, you know, still the basic questions because uh, a second a second question which is also linked to your your, your current question now is uh, what the literature handles is uh, is the impact of or not the impact but you know what drives uh, different sorts of media bias like you know in terms of uh, when you're talking about the news in industry in particular and uh, uh, trying to see whether news channels or newspapers try to cater to the preferences of their readers or do they try to influence uh, influence their readers based on what they feel is right, and you know, and this becomes pertinent basically because there's a large amount of evidence which shows that the news 
I mean, the media in general and news in particular has an impact on a lot of outcomes of media and polarization and things like that. So, so, what, so yeah. just uh, just kind of uh, to to set things up, right? We have an intuitive notion of bias in that, like, let's say, and something happens that's not favorable to either the right or the left, and that's not going to be maybe reported or reported as prominently in the newspaper that favors that candidate, for example. But while that seems easy for us to determine on a case-by-case basis, how does one actually measure this uh, bias in order to study it? Right. So, exactly. So, I mean, while anecdotally one might think, as you say, that, you know, okay, uh, you know, a particular newspaper, you know, gave a lot of coverage to a particular scandal because... Uh, you know, because they're sort of politically aligned with that political party. But on average, does that hold? Does that hold more generally? And so what what the literature has basically done is, is, is tried to look at different sort of case studies, looking at corruption scandals, etc., and trying to look at uh, a large number of these events. And we don't we don't have a good measure of of what an absolute bias is. But relative bias is something that we can measure that you know relative to a newspaper which which is sort of right wing you know does uh, does newspaper uh, does the left wing newspaper cover a particular scandal less or more and i mean there is i mean historical evidence uh, by jim snyder where they show that you know uh, left leaning newspapers cover uh, right wing scandals more intensively and vice versa um but again, in terms of in terms of the causal effects, it's still not it's still not quite clear because um, because often this sort of supply driven bias, which is you know coming from uh, say political preferences or editorial preferences, often um, often are observationally equivalent to the demand driven biases, and this is this is particularly true. For uh, for the case of the news media, because uh, what is a reasonably established fact is that um, readers choose newspapers based on their, you know, on on their political based on their political beliefs, and they want their beliefs to be confirmed. Yeah. And so the fact that you know you find uh, you find uh, a left leaning newspaper covering a uh, you know, a, a democratic scandal less might actually be driven by them catering to the readers rather than, you know, uh, them being in line with uh, left-wing ideologies or things like that. So, sort of trying to plug my own work in maybe, but mm-hmm. is, um, is like one, one paper that I'm working on right now is trying to look at the impact of advertising revenue on media bias. Uh-huh. And um, and what we do is again use a relative measure uh, of you know how much a particular newspaper covered uh, a car safety recall. So we look at uh, advertising revenue coming straight from car manufacturers, and there to to try and separate out these demand and supply effects. Um, the idea is based on the fact that when there's a car safety recall, the the newspaper, uh, the newspaper, uh, or the manufacturer which is advertising in that newspaper might want to minimize the coverage that a particular newspaper gives to that sca- uh, to that recall. But the reader, especially a reader who is also the owner of that brand's vehicle, would want more coverage. Understood. And so, so if you know, there the demand side would actually. Um, would actually work against finding a sort of a, a, a bias fr- coming from advertisers. And actually, we do find a, a reasonably strong uh, impact of advertising revenue on uh, on media bias. And then, you know, the idea is that we, you can extrapolate this to other sorts of, say, political advertising or political ideologies uh, having an impact. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's a great example because it's orthogonal to whether you're like, let's say a left-wing or a right-wing person, you can understand what's what's going on here, which is just that the business model of the newspaper implies that it has to 
cater to some extent to the people that generate a large amount of revenue mm-hmm. for it, which is the advertisers. Exactly. Um, which which actually um, brings me to a related point. We've we've been talking a lot about the causal impacts of media, mm-hmm. but there's ac- there's an independent literature that studies the economics of uh, platforms, mm-hmm. and typically media is a platform in mm-hmm. that uh, at least part of the gener- uh, part of the revenue, if not all of the revenue, is generated through advertising. So the people that we tend to identify with, which are the people that are uh, using Facebook or Twitter, mm-hmm. reading the New York Times on the internet, aren't necessarily the ones that are paying for it. And so uh, do, you, do you have uh, uh, any, any particular framework that you prefer to th- in, in terms of like how to think, how to think through this, the, the business model of these industries? Right. So, so there I feel that that's where the, the fact that the literature is still growing is, is so I mean definitely you know as as you say uh, you know it, it it is a two-sided it is a two-sided market and it is a platform but the way these different biases might interact is something that you know we're, we're not very sure of and as far as far as I know there are no studies which which try and bring these together you know like in in one proper framework I see yeah so uh, it's something that one has to think through, and I'm yeah I'm not sure um, uh, exactly how they would interact. Yeah. Well, well, one thing that that strikes me as interesting is how competition works in this industry, right? right. Uh, if if there is only room for a couple of newspapers or a couple of TV stations, as was the case uh, back in the day, then. Uh, you might get a very limited set of perspectives. As a consumer, you just have to pick between one versus the other. Uh, but now you have so many different choices. And so uh, does, that, uh, does that affect people's, let's say, uh, beliefs? Or I guess, are they, did they have those beliefs uh, a priori and they just now are better able to sort into various sources of media that confirm their beliefs? Right. So. Um... So actually, I mean, I think if, if you look at if historically in in the 19th century uh, in the U.S., there were many more newspapers in the market than there are now. So now, basically, every county has one major newspaper. While back in the 19th century, there were uh, or the late uh, the late uh, 19th century, uh, there were several newspapers, and you know they would they would. Uh, they would be openly affiliated to political parties, or they would be they would be independent, etc. But I mean, it's true that now with uh, with, for example, social media, with other 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 sort of niche websites uh, coming on, there is definitely sorting going on. I mean, you know, what what is a well a well established fact is that people do sort into news outlets based on what they would like to hear um, but even then you know um, it's even though they they sort into uh, into these different news outlets there is still you know there there is potential causal impact of the media still because even if you know they want they want their priors confirmed or and they might want a bit of truth, you know, like to to find what the truth is. Um, people's ability to filter out the bias is still limited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And is there any empirical evidence on people's ability to filter out bias? Yes, uh, there is actually. So there's there's this paper by one of my co-authors, Brian Knight. It, 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 a 2011 paper in the Review of Economic Studies, where where he showed that um, that that newspapers which made surprising endorsements of certain candidates. So, you know, maybe a right-leaning newspaper uh, endorsing a, a left, uh, you know, a Democrat, mm-hmm. uh, Democratic uh, presidential nom- uh, nominee, etc. Actually, yeah, so, act- like, so someone in- endorsing Hillary Clinton, like the National Review endorsing Hillary Clinton. Right, right. Yeah. So, uh, so that actually does have an impact on you know voters updating their beliefs and 
uh, and ha you know being more likely to vote for that candidate but if it's if it's an outlet you know if you know if for example fox news is just like uh, or the new york times is is endorsing uh, a democrat that's going to be filtered out by uh, by by the readers so i see even even when in that case where the right wing reader is still reading let's say the new york times they just know that the new york times is going to exactly exactly it. and also i mean uh, yeah true yeah. true that's true um, okay so one thing i would i do want to get back to yeah. is is polarization right. which so there there have been several uh, papers recently that are trying to understand whether the internet is somehow different in terms of polarization um, than what we had beforehand. And so can you tell us about these papers? Yeah, right. So now that we've had a conversation about sorting and media bias, I think now uh, it's uh, it's good. To, uh, now we have some context in some sense. So I think this the idea of polarization and the internet playing a big role in this, the internet in general playing a big role in this came about a, around the year 2000 where people started talking about these echo chambers because you can always find something that you know if if you want if you want to back your point of view which no one else is backing you just need to google it and you'll find some random website which which backs your you know which backs your intuition um so that led you know that led to the belief that okay uh, now we're going to uh, now people are just going you know since like psychologically they want their their views confirmed they're going to just um, they're going to have these echo chambers and their beliefs are going to get reinforced again and over and over again and we'll be just split up into um, you know splitting up the the readers into slices in some sense and not no interaction being there so that actually you know and there there are there are now a number of studies which show that uh, for example, again by by Matt Jensko and Jesse Shapiro, where they where they looked at uh, where they looked at readers of online news. This so this is in in two thousand and ten. They looked at readers of online news, and they found that, and they looked at like you know proper measures of segregation, such as I don't know, uh, there are like you know measures of segregation for uh, you know in terms of housing for. Uh, uh, based on race, etc., and they, those are already well-developed measures of se segregation, and they applied that measure in the context of uh, in the context of online news. And what they basically found was that um, people, at least till two thousand and ten, people used to get a lot of their news from a variety of sources, and some of these sort of extreme news news websites online accounted for a very small fraction of uh, of the readership in general mm -hmm. um also what what is important to keep in mind is that that when you when you think about polarization online or you know segregating into into different news outlets what is what is the counterfactual? You know, wh what are we comparing it to? Okay, when we we I mean, what is the right benchmark to compare it to? It it can't really be random assignment, right? Because, I mean, you know, you even even offline, you you sort of sort yourselves into into certain sort of networks with with like-minded people, etc. Yeah, and in fact, we know from previous studies that uh, this country is very segregated based on political affiliation. So people that are Republicans live close to other Republicans and Democrats as well. Yeah. Exactly. So so then, I mean, basically what they found in 2010 was that, um, uh, was that segregation offline was not too much different from segregation online. And then that that sort of so that was the first study which was carried out and then um, similar studies on uh, but one thing that that study did leave out was was social media and um, but then there have been subsequent studies which uh, on Twitter on Facebook which show that again there is there is uh, some sort of 
polarization or echo chambers online mm-hmm. but it's not too much different from how people are offline uh but that does you know that's evidence as of 2015 uh, or early 2016 this is you know uh, a rapidly changing environment and it doesn't mean that you know what we see right now is going to is going to hold in in the near future got it so so yeah just in my brief uh, looking at the literature uh, it seemed that the the previous papers have concluded that there there was some effect of uh, for example new types of media or new media channels on on people but that in the aggregate they didn't have a very large effect because only a small share of people were affected and and this of course brings to the question what has happened in the past year where not only on the internet but also in the in the regular media the amount of coverage of political issues has has uh, spiked tremendously so those previously small effects that that were found uh, might now be much more important in aggregate simply because more people are affected more people have probably consumed the media regarding politics in the past year than they have in the previous uh, periods that were being studied by these papers right so uh, so I, I I'm not quite sure of the numbers on that uh, I mean I political engagement obviously you know like viewership of these different news channels etc does go up in presidential election years uh, and and some of the numbers that i've seen does show that you know more and more people are on facebook in general mm-hmm. and then that means that indirectly they they come you know uh, they come into contact with 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 some with some friend who's sharing some news uh, some piece of news etc online um but i'm i'm still not sure how much uh how much facebook i mean people might be spending a lot of time i don't know how much of an impact that does have yeah. uh because again there's a, there's a lot of self selection in, into things uh, into into these outlets but also um is the vital question is that you know uh, is is facebook having an impact over and above all the other sources of news yeah which is which is very tough to answer in general and right now i'm you know i i i'm not convinced that that is the case but say 5 years down the line yeah. i think it, you know as more as more and and we've spoken about this a bit o- offline that as more and more people get onto facebook it it might have a, it might have an impact yeah i i guess just to follow up on that one of the things that facebook has done is they've made news a large larger part of their news feed over the past few years so um so people it turns out like reading kind of news content and in order to keep engagement up uh facebook uh, at least as far as i understand has been putting more and more articles into the news feed that are unrelated to the sharing behavior of users for example and that might be one reason for why uh there could be a bigger exposure to uh to 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 news on social media that hasn't been measured in previous time periods right so but actually i i read something online that uh that a few months ago facebook sort of adopted a policy where they would reduce the amount of news huh in general on the news feed and actually increase you know uh sharing of other things from family and friends so I, i'm uh that's I'm, that i guess that that could have been a more recent uh yeah, phenomenon so do, but i do know that at some point it was a vice versa because right. what was happening was that people weren't uh as they say creating enough content to mm-hmm. share mm-hmm. and uh, they okay. wanted to feed people more content because if there's nothing new in the, your feed you're not going to come back to it right and one of the ways to do that was to uh throw in a lot of news into the into the news feed. Um uh, but I guess uh, you know if more recently it could be the case that they've decided to go against this. 
Yeah, well, I mean, so I think this happened in in May this year. So in May 2016, uh-huh. uh, or at least that's what they said that they would do. But uh, I mean, I'm not sure. But I, I think definitely, I think you're right that say over the past couple of years, we have seen an increase in the amount of in the amount of news being shared on Facebook and the amount of news being available. Yes, and the amount of traffic that that Facebook drives to mainstream news outlets because you know it's. it's probably the the primary driver of traffic even uh, i think it's even surpassed google if i'm if i'm not mistaken hmm, interesting yeah i guess there was at some point a very controversial attempt by facebook to ingest all of all of uh media by by saying that if you cooperate with us we'll make your news load faster and it'll be better for everyone so uh that's an you know That's another thing that's been going on in the industry yeah. that at least I think I haven't seen any any papers about the effects of whether, you know, a particular outlet cooperates with Facebook or not on their uh on their viewership for example. Right, right. So so I think now a, a large well I don't know if it's a large number but a a, a sizable number of mainstream newspapers, you know, from across the world have you know signed up with Facebook so that you know they they can have their articles load faster etc one of the issues there was that uh one of the main uh, the main issues in that agreement was that they're going to sh- uh facebook is going to share uh readership or viewership uh details with with the news companies mm-hmm. as well so that you know the, the news companies also have access to that data and know what their readers want etc um as I think it would be interesting to see what the impact of uh, is on the type of content yeah. that that you know newspapers start to churn out. Uh, you know, does it have any impact on editorial decisions? Uh, you know, even maybe not consciously, but like you know, uh, sometimes you just you, you yeah. just you just don't know what you know. Uh, it's subconsciously going on. Yeah. 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 So so this this brings up two points. Uh, the first point being. Yeah, like we've been speculating just a ton right now about what is being shared on Facebook, what is happening on Facebook, and it seems like this is a pretty important topic for society. Uh, but at the same time, there's kind of no way that I'm aware of to get even a you know a representative sample of what's being shared on people's news feeds and how that's changing over time, or what the engagement with that content is over time. So. Do you think that there should be um, some sort of overt policy by Facebook to share its data, or by the government to uh, inspect the data in some way? This has been something that has been uh, brought up by various Facebook critics. Has it? Oh, okay. Uh, well, I mean, so I mean, in general, one good thing about, for example, looking at Twitter. for a researcher is that yeah. you know all that data is out there and you know th- there are no issues in accessing the data and you have re- reasonable proxies for you know how many people would have viewed it uh, retweeted etc uh i mean i suppose your point is uh, is about a broader issue which is that you know if we think that facebook is is going to play a pivotal role in how people get their news should and and because of the fact that news has news you know has a public good uh, has a public goods dimension to it through its informational externalities should facebook because of that share its data i i mean i don't think so uh I, because you know even even when you look at mainstream newspapers it's not as if you know uh, there were explicit government regulations as to you know uh, as to in terms of sharing data with the government or with uh, an external agency there was there, there's a lot of self regulation in the media industry and i i think one one of one of one of the key issues was that when these big newspapers partnered up with facebook they made they made sure that you know in their agreements they did have access to Uh, access to you know the facebook viewership data or the facebook clicks data mm-hmm. so that at least they know what's going on yeah well for their own articles yeah, not for, for other yeah, people's yeah, articles yeah yeah that's true that's true yeah. but and i mean in some sense and also like if we think of the newspaper as an analog to the feed 
the newspaper's feed is publicly available, so the data is shared for anyone that wants to see it. Whereas uh, I have little sense of what a person, you know, in, in Nebraska, let's say, is is viewing on on their newsfeed, or is even not, you know, is, is shown on their newsfeed, and and so on and so forth for all sorts of uh, Im important. Uh, types of individuals that we might care about for policy reasons or, or for political reasons. Right, so that's an interesting point and it's, some, it's something that, uh, that I hadn't thought of. Right. Uh, but again, so I, as of now, like even though you know Facebook is the dominant social media platform and you know people do get a, a reasonable amount of news from it, as of now, I'm not too worried about that. Uh, but I mean, later, I mean, when when Facebook becomes extremely dominant, which it it probably will, should it be forced to disclose how, for example, you know how things are ordered and you know in what way are they presented to different readers? Again, I, I you know like my sense is that that formal regulations in in any sort of media context is yeah it's, it, it's a recipe it, for disaster it's a reci exactly it's yeah. a recipe for disaster it yeah. would have to come through you know again some sort of self regulation uh, even though you know self regulation never works perfectly you know yeah, there there, yeah. there are different major news outlets uh, you know mess up big time uh, across the board but Explicit regulation is something that you know, especially when one of the main things that the, that the news has to do is to keep you know the government in check, and if the you know if government if the government has some formal regulations in place, that's uh, yeah. Know, yeah that's uh, yeah that's something I wouldn't want. Yeah, uh, yeah. understood. Yeah. Um, the second point I wanted to bring up in, with relation to this data sharing agreement, and and you've done some work on this, is that one of the things that content producers and content aggregators can now do is they can see how much demand there is for a particular piece of content mm -hmm. rather than the bundle. So like right. before, the New York Times would sell a newspaper and they would know how many they would sell as a function of what they put you know, on the front page. Uh, but I don't think they experimented with their front pages and they certainly didn't know how many people read Article 3 on the third page and Article 4 on the tenth page. Right. But uh, now they're able to do so. So how has that affected uh, the type of content that is produced? Uh, right. And, act and, and this sort of links back to what, you, you know, the sort of strategy or, or what Facebook, you know, what Facebook's uh, obligation should be in the, in the news in general. So, I mean, so you mentioned the paper where we uh, you know, where uh, I looked at a large, uh, I along with my co-author Pinar Hildrim, uh, looked at uh, a large uh, Indian national daily and we had like one, one year's worth of data and the number of clicks on each and every article that they published online. And, you know, the idea was try and see whether now since, as you said, that they can observe the number of clicks on on each particular article, and not you know as a, not only as a newspaper or their homepage as a whole, um, do we do we get more news just because uh, just because a particular article was doing well initially in terms of the number of clicks? And while so while you, just to clarify, news of that particular type. So so uh, news of that particular type or. I mean, what we did was that we had like a particular news story. Uh, you know, we uh, cut up the data into news stories. For example, if uh, if the ISIS carried out some bombing in some in 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 some city, then all the articles related to that within a particular time. I see. So it's like a string of articles about the same topic. Uh, yeah, about the same event, let's say. And so what what we showed was that that if a particular story gets. Uh, a large, uh, if a particular story gets a large number of clicks initially, and these clicks are independent of the importance or the quality of that uh, of that news piece, even then we get more follow-up articles just because they got a larger number of clicks initially, 
and I mean we use some you know we use some instrumental variables to try and isolate this effect. Um, so just uh, for the listeners, just to clarify, uh, you couldn't just look at the articles that got the most clicks because they could be the best articles. So what they've done is uh, identified just random random reasons why some articles got more clicks than others and saw whether that had an independent effect. Right, exactly. So, uh, so, so to sort of build on that then, um, the biggest issue in trying to say that, oh, uh, more clicks leads to more coverage is how do you tease out the, the, the causal effect from a mere correlation? Basically because uh, so something which is about Donald Trump or the ISIS is going to get a large number of clicks and is, is going to get a large amount of coverage online basically because potentially these topics are important. So that's going to be driving both larger clicks and the amount of coverage. So for example, what we did was that uh, we looked at, uh, for example, we looked at days when there was, uh, there was rain and uh, with the idea being that uh, on rainy days, people tend to be inside more and tend to be online more. And we find that on rainy days, uh, on you know, clicks on these uh, on this news website do go up, mm -hmm. and this is and we we try uh, we try and build a story around this uh, to claim that this is uh, these clicks are going up independent of uh, of uh, you know the importance of the story or the quality of the story, and we use this variation to try uh, to try and pin down the causal impact of clicks on coverage. I see, and. What do you let's so let's say that clicks do have an effect mm -hmm. on coverage. Uh, what what do you make of that? Right. So um, so I mean, in terms of the big picture, there's there's also the fact that a lot of the media regulation is based on the assumption that uh, all I mean we we term this uh, uh, we call this a clicks bias in our paper and. Uh, Media regulation is generally based on the uh, based on the assumption that that all of the bias is supply side. Is that you know uh, what matters is you know political parties or corporate advertisers influencing editors. And what we're trying to show is that that you know there's a different kind of bias. Mm -hmm. And you know now now there are a few studies which show that and which has to be taken into account. And uh, traditional uh, traditional merger policy which tries to uh, which only focuses on supply side bias might not be taking the full picture into account. Got but, it. But I guess I'm a little confused by the term bias here in the sense that uh, it's I w bias often oftentimes has this connotation of being like against the truth or something. But in a lot of cases regarding news stories, it's not it's not as if um, there's some objective distribution of news stories that that should exist for a newspaper. So it's, I guess, if if you use your estimate solely for uh, for political type articles, then the term bias might be easier to digest. Right. So actually, I mean, so in the paper, we then also look at uh, you know uh, what sort of uh, what kinds of stories get these larger number of clicks and what what sort of stories get uh, these sort uh, these follow-ups and what we find is that uh, this is uh, these follow-up articles are based on this increase in clicks solely on hard news stories so which are more political in nature uh -huh. which which do have informational externalities and you know we have a model in the paper where we where we try and tease this out the fact that you know if if you just keep focusing on on what uh, a majority of the people want, then it's going to crowd out other potentially important stories, and hence, uh, you know, and hence uh, we we term this as a bias. Like the the fact that it's independent of quality and it's just systematically in line with the number of clicks that you get, and yeah, and so I mean, then sort of trying to link it to uh, what we were talking about earlier in terms of Facebook is that. Uh, Facebook was initially criticized in terms of its newsfeed that oh you know uh, they're uh, they're basically trying to give you news that you want so that you you get the maximum number of likes and the maximum number of shares. Um, 
of course you know facebook is not technically a you know it's not a news organization so even in in the background it's not being governed by those uh, potential uh, you know ethical uh, sort of uh, issues that you have to keep in mind when you're when you're a proper news organization but when you draw a parallel with with our study and with a couple of others for example there's one by Matt, Matt Jensko and Jesse Shapiro on like media slant where you know it shows that um, catering to the preferences of the readers is one of the one of the main drivers of content so the i think in that case facebook got some uh, you know harsh you know harsh and unnecessary criticism just because uh, you know they were trying to maximize likes well i i think that the maximization of likes is an, is something that is potentially worthy of criticism in the sense that there might be better measures of what is good content right I, in the sense like one measure could be the amount of time that you spend reading the article for example mm -hmm. uh, but the types of data that the platform chooses to share is going to affect uh, what type of content is is going to seem quote unquote good and is going to consequently if we believe these papers is going to affect the content that's produced so that that seems like a really important uh, so, uh, choice so in general I, you know i agree with you but but the thing is that you have to you have to judge facebook relative to what other other news outlets are doing right now and that that's my only point that uh, that you know it's uh, sure i mean maybe you know uh, uh, technically, those news outlets should should also not be just systematically foc focusing on clicks. But you know, the fact that mainstream news organizations do that, and then Facebook gets a lot of flack, is a bit you know. That, uh, that, that's fair. Yeah. I guess like another interesting part of that paper was um, you were trying to tease out whether this was a rational response or not. Yeah. So like the the type of variation that you use is is purely random. So. Mm -hmm. uh, it might have nothing to do with the quality or the interest level of the story, so it might not even be optimal for the firm to produce more, more articles about a, a given story. Uh, so, uh, can you talk about that? Right. So, I mean, uh, so in terms of using using these uh, these sources of exogenous variation, so we used rainfall and power outages, and for our uh, for our identification strategy to be valid, in the sense that we required that uh, it, it's required that uh, that rainfall or power outages don't impact the quality of the content that's being produced on those days, uh, and this can be undone if uh, if news editors realize that you know people are going to be you know people are less connected to the news because there's a power outage. Or people are more connected to the news because there's rainfall, and so then they might alter their content. So what we what we try to and and this is linked to a broader debate about you know the fact that there's a lot of data available. You know we we talk a lot about big data and about how firms have big data, but it's not only about you know having that data. It's about do you know how to use it? Mm -hmm. And so what we what we actually show is that it seems. Um, that it's that the editors don't realize that these spike or this decline in clicks is due to these random shocks. Because, for example, when we when we look at uh, when we look at one-off holidays, uh, like in India, where we we see a similar spike in clicks, but these you know editors are more aware that these are holidays. We don't find the same sort of effect. Also. I mean, uh, if this increase in clicks due to rainfall, for example, uh, was uh, showed that the readers were actually truly interested in that story relative to say any any other story published on any other day or that day, then we would we would see readers coming back and clicking more on the follow up article of that story, uh -huh. and it and, and that's and we and we don't see anything see. anything like that. So. In you know it's yeah. uh, in general they're, 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 yeah they're, they're, it seems that they they are being naive uh, and well I I actually did go back and talk to the newspaper about it and indeed like anecdotally they said that yes okay we didn't know that we were actually doing this 
and uh, we're going to take this into account. So, so this is an interesting uh, case where a research paper that finds an effect might ha might undo the effect as, as uh, people start using the data in a more sophisticated manner. They're learning, you know. It's I th I think I think uh, these these large newspapers or media organizations, which were you know first uh, which were first by traditional print or on television, they have a hard time. Uh, sort of adapting to uh, to online content and online data while some other newer online platforms are really queued in and are much better at this. I see. Uh, and I, I guess uh, we're, we're getting close to the end, so I just want to ask one, one uh, additional question, which is, do we think that the industry structure is now shifting to one where it's no longer going to be profitable to produce deep investigative journalism. I think this is a key question that a lot of people think about. If traditional media companies are losing out to these newer ones, and if everyone is now following clicks, then uh, it, is it worthwhile to pay for very expensive investigations and, and, and publish them? So, and that's one, yeah, that's one of the biggest concerns uh, which has come up with, with the rise of the internet and, you know, uh, and other news websites, social media platforms. Um, and th I think that that is an issue. There, there's some, uh, there's some work which is done by Julia Cage, which it's a working paper which, where she shows that most, uh, like the news which is clicked on the most and shared the most is basically verbat uh, verbatim uh, copies of the original news piece, and they are often not not even you know the the uh, the, uh, the news website which which broke that story is often not even uh, yeah. you know mentioned or cited in, in that uh, you know in, in that news news piece. Which is which is troubling, you know. Which the, is yeah, a, this yeah. is a classic uh, free rider problem. Exactly, exactly, and. Uh, um, yeah, and and that's something I worry about in general. You know, because of more competition, we've seen uh, new stuff being laid off and uh, a trend towards clicks. It's it's worrying, and it, and it's definitely happening. And it, you know, how how you go about rectifying that situation, you know, is an open question. Also, because you don't uh, exactly because you don't want to meddle in the media industry with. Uh, Heavy-handed regulation with with regulation, yeah. so it's uh, it's tough to you know find the right sort of balance. Okay, yeah. well on yeah. that on that somber note, uh, thanks so much <laughs> for uh, being on this podcast. Yeah. Thank you for having me.